Hello, everybody, and welcome to Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Calvin Pollock, Sophie Wadzak, and Ben Williams. And today we have a great show cooked up for you. It's a type of episode we haven't done in over a year, but we think it will be a feast for your ears. Our Reblurb series. That's right. On our Reblurb shows, we pick from a heaping plate of concepts in rhetoric, cultural studies, and the humanities, and slice them down into bite-sized chunks so that they're more digestible for our audience. Mm-hmm. Once we've made these daunting ideas a bit more appetizing, we like to give our audience a couple of examples to chew on. You know, some morsels to ruminate upon, a little food for thought. Uh, Alex, are, are you okay over there? Oof, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be all right. It's, it's just, did you have to word your introductions to the episode like that? It's something about your word choice, it's, it's making me really hungry. Hmm, I don't know what you're talking about. All the descriptive words we just used, like digestible, appetizing, chew on, bite-sized, ruminate. These are all pretty standard words to describe how people consume information. Oh, consume. See, you did it again. These aren't just words that describe thought processes. They're also descriptions of food and eating. It's, it's almost like we associate these food-specific terms with thinking because thought is an abstract, complex concept, and food gives us a simple, concrete, physical analog to understand it. Oh, why is our language like this? Well, now that you mention it, Alex, what you're talking about is kind of related to our reblurb topic today, which is conceptual metaphors. And these are not just a feature of language. Conceptual metaphors tell us a lot more about things like culture and politics, too. So why don't you go grab a snack, and then we can dig in. At its most basic definition, a conceptual metaphor is a mental construct, often expressed through language, that helps us better define conceptual processes, things that are invisible, abstract, or difficult to concretely define. We do this by associating those abstract processes with the characteristics of concrete, physical, easier-to-understand processes. In the introduction to this show, my co-host gave some provocative examples of a simple conceptual metaphor, thoughts are food. In American English language and culture, we often associate the processes of thinking with cooking and consuming food because they serve as a useful physical grounding for something that is otherwise difficult to put into concrete terms. So, when we say that we are putting an idea on the back burner, percolating some fresh ideas, or digesting information, we are implicitly associating two otherwise very different actions because they bear some conceptual similarity to one another. The action of moving something to the back burner, in cooking and in thinking, implies that we are no longer giving it our primary attention, or that we are prioritizing other things. The action of digesting both information and food refers to taking time and energy to process something after consuming it. Thus, the two subject areas, or conceptual domains, contain an implicit link created by the metaphor, which helps us better understand what is taking place in the more complex and abstract domain. The term conceptual metaphor was brought into popular prominence by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson in their landmark book, Metaphors We Live By, published in 1980. They begin by contrasting the traditional definition of metaphor as, quote, a device of the poetic imagination and the rhetorical flourish, a matter of extraordinary rather than ordinary language, with the contention that, quote, metaphor is pervasive in everyday life, not just in language, but in thought and action. 
As they argue, metaphors, quote, govern our everyday functioning down to the most mundane details. Our concepts structure what we perceive, how we get around in the world, and how we relate to other people, and thus play a central role in defining our everyday realities. For Lakoff and Johnson, metaphors are not just mere rhetorical ornaments that one learns to identify in literary texts, but an intrinsic feature of language, cognition, and social life. Metaphors We Live By goes into great detail accounting for different types of conceptual metaphors that mediate the English language and the cultures in which it's spoken. There are orientational metaphors, which use directional language to help us make sense. For instance, when we speak of temperature changes, we refer to things heating up and cooling down, which is related to the way that mercury expands upward in a thermometer as it's heated and contracts down when it gets cooler, or the way that hot air rises above cool air. There are also ontological metaphors and personifications, in which abstract things are rendered as discrete, tangible entities, or even as people. This function is useful for quantifying something that we cannot see, as in the example, it will take a lot of patience to finish this episode. Patience does not exist as a physical entity that can be quantified, but we can think about its quantity metaphorically in useful ways when speaking. Similarly, personifying something allows us to attribute agency to it and give it human qualities. For instance, this podcast gives me great joy. Despite the fact that a podcast cannot physically deliver to someone an abstract feeling like joy. In this instance, I've also used metonym, another conceptual strategy, to allow a single entity, this podcast, to stand in for a broader assemblage that it is a part of, i.e. the work that the editors and producers of Reverb perform to produce this podcast. However, these metaphors are not merely limited to semantic language functions, as in the case of several examples above. If we look to patterns of conceptual metaphors, we stand to learn something about the culture in which those metaphors are deployed. For instance, I'm sure at one point or another you've heard the phrase, time is money, which is accepted as a general truism in corporate settings and has made its way to the status of a cultural platitude in societies living under capitalism. This metaphor accentuates the value of efficiency and expediency in conducting daily business. What you may not have noticed, however, is that in many English-speaking contexts, time is literally talked about as if it is a limited, valuable, spendable commodity. For example, if someone is boring you, you might say that they are wasting your time, as they would waste your money, and that you'd rather spend your time doing something else. Someone in a perilous situation might be said to be living on borrowed time, accentuating that their future prospects are rather precarious. Or if you want a personal relationship to become stronger, you might say that you want to invest a significant amount of time into improving it. The most classic example of cultural metaphor from Metaphors We Live By is one that you've likely heard traces of in your daily life before. Argument is war. Under this pattern of metaphors, when we are arguing with someone, we defend a position from an opponent who is trying to attack and shoot down the weak points of our argument. These metaphors tell us a great deal about how our culture conceives of arguments. They are discrete events that can be won and lost by one party or another, and they often require an intense, militant strategy that never gives any ground. Lakoff and Johnson prompt us to wonder, however, what an argument might look like under an alternative metaphorical construction. They write, Imagine a culture where argument is viewed as a dance. 
The participants are seen as performers, and the goal is to perform in a balanced and aesthetically pleasing way. In such a culture, people would view arguments differently, experience them differently, carry them out differently, and talk about them differently. Certainly, such an argument style would be less adversarial, less focused on defeating an opponent, and perhaps geared toward finding harmony and synchronicity between two parties. Friend of the show, Cameron Mozafari, a scholar of conceptual metaphors himself, wrote into the show to suggest some other alternatives to the argument-is-war metaphor that we commonly see in everyday language use. For instance, we also refer to arguments as containers, which can be full of good points and content, or devoid of them, as pathways, which can imply that they cover a lot of ground or proceed in a step-by-step -step process, and even as buildings, since we often speak of arguments as being constructed and can criticize them for lacking a strong foundation. Each of these metaphorical configurations presents us with a different context for thinking about arguments. In some scenarios, we might find it more useful to think of them as confrontational and warlike, while in other, more casual settings, they can be conceived of as constructive processes or even dramatic journeys. Up to this point, we have seen conceptual metaphors that are largely thought of as pre-existing, inevitable, and often invisible links between language and culture. However, conceptual metaphors can also be highly political, particularly when there are rhetorical choices at play for how to render something metaphorically. The politics of metaphor are perhaps most important in news media discourse, where journalists are reporting on events and topics that are likely outside the everyday experience of most people. Take, for example, reporting on immigration into the United States. For people reading the news who do not live near a U.S. borderland, the concept of immigration may feel very abstract to them. They do not physically see it happening on a day-to-day -day basis. Thus, journalists are faced with a series of ethical and highly political rhetorical choices in describing the issue to a broad public audience, especially since the language they use may have consequences for public opinion and sentiments on vulnerable groups of people, such as racialized immigrants. As such, many scholars of critical discourse analysis have criticized mainstream news media for using natural disaster metaphors when talking about immigration. Phrases like, a flood of immigrants breached the border, waves of immigrants inundated U.S. shores, or swells of immigrants overwhelmed the border patrol are ubiquitous in news discourse. While these metaphorical constructions do communicate the theme of large-scale mobility, they also render immigrants as non-individualized masses that pose a serious threat to the imagined secure perimeter of the U.S. border. There is yet another layer of metaphor implicated in these kinds of headlines, which discourse scholars from Michael Reddy to Paul Chilton have termed a container metaphor. The idea that a country's physical and ideological border is secure 
hermetically sealed vessel that is designed to keep good people and good ideas inside and shield from the bad elements outside. As such, a container metaphor affords powerful people and institutions the ability to name things that are quintessentially inside the container, part of an us group, as well as things that are foreign, dangerous, and coming from outside the container, a them group. Hi everyone, Calvin here. To illustrate how conceptual metaphors can have political implications, I'm going to analyze an article published by the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS, a powerful think tank in Washington, D.C. The article, from September 23, 2020, is entitled Countering Russian Disinformation. As the executive summary describes its argument, quote, over the past several years, Russia has used a combination of social media savvy and disinformation strategies to further Russian influence, largely by weakening its foes. This use of disinformation to weaken NATO, cast doubt on the European Union, and undermine countries throughout the world has prompted countries to develop countermeasures to stymie these efforts." End quote. The article defines its key term, disinformation, this way. Quote, Disinformation is a tool commonly used by a number of states to sow discord, undermine faith in governing institutions, stoke fear and anxiety, and ultimately achieve certain policy goals. Now, I want to focus in particular on the conceptual metaphor to sow discord. This metaphor associates an abstract, complex process, state-led foreign influence operations, with the concrete, simple process of sowing seeds. When we think of sowing seeds, we likely also think of words and concepts like to plant, to scatter, to strew, along with an image of a farmer, planter, or gardener who is solely responsible for putting seeds into the ground. That ground is perceived of as tillable, meaning it is unspoiled and fertile. Crucially, in the original domain of planting, the same plant must not already exist in that exact spot in the soil at that exact moment. In short, to sow something is to introduce it or disseminate it within the garden or field in question. Furthermore, it must be noted that sow discord is a mixed metaphor. In this case, the seed that is being planted is specified as discord. Discord comes from the conceptual domain of music. When we think of discord, we probably think of disharmony between notes being played or sung, or a chord requiring resolution by another. We might also think of a displeasing clash between multiple players or singers in an orchestra or choir. Notice here that, as a negation, discord presumes the default or natural state is harmony or unison. In this default state, everyone plays their individual part correctly without deviating from the harmonious composition. Putting the two parts of this metaphor together then, we have an image of an evil planter inserting improper notes or chords into a garden or field where the already growing plants had been singing beautifully. Thus, in sowing discord, the nefarious planter disrupts the garden's harmony. Back to the CSIS article now. This conceptual metaphor appears in excerpts such as the following, quote, Russian disinformation operations were credited with sowing discontent in the United States 
and curtailing Hillary Clinton's electoral support in 2016, end quote. Recall the conceptual implication of this choice of metaphors. To claim that such operations sowed discontent in the U.S. in 2016 implies that Russia introduced it then, that discontent did not already exist here in 2016. The writers go on to praise the Czech Republic's Center Against Terrorism and Hybrid Threats, a government body created in 2017 to counter Russia's influence operations. The writers claim it is notable that such institutions exist in the Czech Republic, where the legislature features, quote, parties often espousing stances in line with Russian narratives, such as the far-right Freedom and Direct Democracy Party and the Communist Party of Bohemia and Moravia, end quote. Going on, the article describes the center's efforts to counter, quote, Russia's efforts to spy on, hack, and sow discord in the Czech Republic, end quote. Given the significant power of far-right and far-left parties in the legislature, it seems illogical to imply that discord did not exist in Czech society prior to Russia's operations. Radical political parties are typically committed to changing the distribution of rights and resources in societies, which suggests that many of the different players or singers in the Czech Republic ensemble may be unhappy with their current parts. Many Czech people may not view the piece that their country is playing as a particularly harmonious one, but the use of so discord suggests that Russia, as planter, is the one inserting errant notes or chords, which wouldn't otherwise be present in the Czech Republic's national song. Finally, the CSIS writers claim, quote, NATO has also been targeted by Russian disinformation as the Kremlin looks to sow discord and fuel animus toward the organization, end quote. Likewise, this implies that, prior to Russia's operations, there had been no discord over NATO's status in Europe or in the global political system. But recall that NATO has been centrally involved in the still-raging war in Afghanistan, that it trained forces in the 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq, and it led the destructive 2011 attack against Libya. In addition, since the end of the Cold War, NATO has rapidly increased its territory to encompass countries closer and closer to Russia. Not everyone has agreed with these policies, even in countries outside Russia. Thus, when CSIS writers describe Russian influence operations as sowing discord over NATO, they're making a rhetorical choice with ideological and political implications. As in all of the examples described already, this implies that Russia is the sole planter of discordant notes in the fields of Western countries. According to this metaphor, it is not our politicians' duty to resolve discord through policy. Indeed, our country's music had been largely harmonious before Russia planted these wrong notes. It is not as if our already existing disharmony or people's dissatisfaction with their parts in the national composition is weakening civil society and making it difficult to resolve our problems, no. Rather, this metaphor of sowing discord implies that if we could simply take out the planter, Russia, all of our music would be euphonious, dulcet, and mellifluous. So what explains this rhetorical choice? In 2016, the New York Times reported that the Center for Strategic and International Studies is largely funded by corporations that profit from war and preparations for war, including Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, General Dynamics, and Northrop Grumman. 
Thus, CSIS's rhetorical choices may be designed to support policies that increase these corporations' profits by strengthening their existing markets and, perhaps, creating new markets. To be clear, my concern over the reach of CSIS's rhetoric and ideology is not merely academic. In 2018, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting found that NPR's Morning Edition regularly cites CSIS as a source, and NPR is far from an outlier there. Many mainstream media outlets draw upon CSIS's reports and research, recontextualizing its foreign and domestic policy rhetoric. Thus, this metaphor of foreign enemies sowing discord is circulating widely in U.S. political discourse. But it is a problematic metaphor, because it obscures the extent to which our discord has not been planted by anyone other than our own political and economic leaders. I hope this brief analysis has helped you to see the value of conceptual metaphors as a tool for analyzing political writing. Be sure to spread this episode all throughout your social networks. And from all of us at Reverb, we hope your days and nights are filled with joy. Take care. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg, Calvin Pollock, Sophie Wadzak, and Ben Williams, with writing and editing work by Alex and Calvin. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. 